Good morning again to you here at First Baptist Church. As you see uh, on the screens, we're looking at the uh, last 40 days of Jesus' life here on earth. After he was resurrected from the dead, which we celebrated, of course, on Resurrection Sunday, that wasn't the end of his time here, and for very good reason. Because had he just uh, resurrected from the dead and said, hey, bye, folks, and took off, people would have wondered, did we really see that or did we not? And so for over a period of 40 days, Jesus was here on earth, and he was gone. He'd show up and he'd leave, uh, kind of like a, a super-duper hero or something like that. And, uh, but time after time after time, he met together with people, and he showed them that he was alive. He ate with them. He talked with them. They touched his body, and they saw the scars. So he was awake. He was here, rather, for 40 days, and then, the Bible tells us, he ascended to heaven. And he hasn't been back since that we know of least, but he's coming back again. In fact, we, we just sang about that a few minutes ago. Um, the, the verse of scripture that we are looking at is, is Acts chapter 1, verse 3. It says, after his suffering, that's of course the cross, he showed himself to these men and gave, and of course men there means men and women because the first witnesses of the resurrection were women, they weren't men. He showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. So these are kind of his, his last instructions to his disciples and to, to many other people who were following him now after he was raised from the dead. Now today we're going to see Jesus in a place that should ring very, very true to you people from Wyoming because I went online this week. And this is all I typed in. I typed in the top fishing spots in the USA. And number one, Wind River Range, Wyoming. Woo, that's pretty good. Um, it talked about all the virtues of the Wind River Range. I've never fished that, but I'll bet a bunch of you have. Uh, I'm not going to ask for hands because you'd probably rather be there this morning rather than here in church fishing this beautiful river. But this is the number one spot in all of this country, they say, is in this state. And so if anybody should know about fishing, it ought to be people from Wyoming. Because today, our text of scripture is going to be all about fishing for a variety of very obvious reasons. Because Jesus seems to have had a very great liking for fish and fishermen. About the only meal we knew he, eat, he ate, because he told us, was he ate fish. And he had something about fishermen he liked, because to our knowledge, seven of the 12 disciples were fishermen. And so today we're going to look at a text of scripture in John chapter 21. If you have a Bible, please turn with me there. And it's the first 14 verses. It's going to talk about Jesus, because he's now going to go and meet with his disciples who had gone fishing. So that's our text of scripture today. What we're going to find is that fish figure very prominently in the ministry of Jesus and thereafter. And so we're going to kind of trace this theme of fish and fishermen through the life of Jesus. And we're going to come to this text of scripture, John 21, when his disciples are out fishing and Jesus is on shore. We'll see what happens. The first thing that this is probably a, 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 a phrase that you've heard before, fishers of men, but you might wonder where uh, it comes from. Jesus' first recorded followers were fishermen from Galilee. 
And most of his disciples, as I said, were fishermen. And what he told these people after he called them to be his disciples is, is that these fishermen would become fishers of men. And let's see how it happened. It actually all began at the very beginning of Jesus' public ministry. Jesus' public ministry began when Jesus was roughly 30 years of age. Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist in the Jordan River, and John was his cousin, as you know. They were related. John was just maybe six months older than Jesus. John had become a spectacular figure, very well known throughout the nation of Israel as a, as a holy man. Everyone's scared to death of this guy. He you know, ate bugs, and he lived in the desert and wore weird clothes, and he was a prophet of God, and people knew it, and they, they were afraid of this guy. Well, John the Baptist was not afraid of Jesus. In fact, he said, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. And so Jesus um, went and was baptized by John the Baptist. But what you may not know is that Jesus' first disciples were disciples of John the Baptist. These are not people that Jesus found us fishing in their boat one day and said, hey, dudes, come on and follow me. He didn't do that. These were people who already were following. They were in the camp of John the Baptist. And let's see what happens. The next day, John, this is John the Baptist, was there again with two of his disciples. Now, these, these two would probably are Andrew and John, the apostle John, the one who writes this. These are the two. When, G, when he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Now that should give you some indication of the kind of person that John the Baptist was. Here was a man who had people who were following him that he was teaching, and somebody came along and John knew, this person is infinitely greater than I am, and so his disciples say, hey, we'd like to follow this man. John says, go right ahead, because he is far, far greater than I am. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, what do you want? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. So very early in, in Jesus' ministry, the first disciples that he, that he gathered to himself were these two men named Andrew and John, the apostle John and Andrew, and both of them were fishermen. And then, if you know the next, the next lines in the story, what happened is Andrew then went and got his brother, whose name was Peter, also a fisherman. And then John went and got his brother named James, and he was a fisherman. And their father, Zebedee, was the owner of the fish business in Galilee. So the first four disciples of Jesus were in all likelihood fishermen from Galilee. Now, here's what happened next. One day, as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, that's the Sea of Galilee, with people crowding around him and listening to the word of God, he saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. Now again, when we think of fishermen here in Wyoming, you probably think of fly fishermen. They didn't even know what that was back then. They didn't even know the casting of a rod, though Jesus is going to use a parable that speaks of a person casting out a line but the way they caught fish back then was more commercial. They used big nets, and they swept in bunches of fish. That's how they caught them. They were washing their nets. In other words, they had been out fishing. The, the night's fishing was over. 
and they were cleaning their nets. Jesus got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, that's Peter, and asked him to put out a little from shore. Why? Well, because Jesus was being pressed by this crowd, and they kept pushing back, and finally he's at the water's edge, and he said, okay, let's get in a boat. They're not going to come out in the boat and swim to me while I'm speaking to them. So he's using the boat as a platform from which to speak. Then he sat down, and he, caught, he taught the people from the boat. Again, you might look at that as odd. You see, in, that, in this society, a teacher typically gets up to speak. In that society, a teacher sat down to speak. So Jesus sat down in the boat, and when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. Now remember, Jesus is um, he's a landlubber. He's, he's from Nazareth. He's, there's no water in Nazareth. And so he's now with these fishermen who are very accomplished fishermen, and he's giving them fish advice, which is a little bit weird for somebody that doesn't know much about fishing. Well, here's what happened. Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night, and we haven't caught anything. But because you say so, I'll let down the nets. When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. Do you remember what happened next? Peter went to Jesus, and he said, get away. Get out of here. I, I cannot be in your presence. I'm not a holy man. By the way, sometimes it seems to me that we here in, in America, particularly because we're not known for being very respectful of anything or anybody, including God. One of the common things you'll find in the scriptures is when anyone has any glimpse of what God is like, it's pretty sobering. Isaiah had a little glimpse of the glory of God. He says, woe is me. I'm an unclean man. I dwell among people of unclean lips. I, I, I don't belong in the presence of God. Job did that. Abraham did that. It seems like whenever a person has a, an encounter with God, the first thing they recognize is how how huge the gap is between the holy God and ourselves. That's the first thing Peter understood. He said, I don't, have, I don't belong in your presence, Jesus. I don't, I don't measure up. Which, by the way, is a very good thing. That's a good sign if you feel that way about yourself because you have some sense of what holiness looks like. One of the greatest excuses we will hear in our society today, it drives me absolutely crazy. If you say it to me, I'm not going to say anything to you, but I'm going to be stewing inside. You do something wrong, you go, well, I'm not perfect. Duh. <laughs> perfect. Do you know what per We are so low in this culture. Do you know what perfect is? I'm not perfect. Are you kidding? We don't get through a minute perfect. Because perfect means you do always do and say the right thing. Not only do you not do wrong things, but every single right thing you should ever do, you always do. And you always say it with the right tone, perfectly with the right motive, every second of every day. Are you perfect? Come on. I'm not. Well, I'm not perfect. We use it as an excuse. Perfect. If you had any sense of what God is like or what Jesus was like, you wouldn't say that. You go, Eesh. I don't belong in your presence because I know who I am. You're a billion, trillion, trillion times greater than I am. You are perfect, but I am not. I'm far from perfect. That's what Peter did. 
So now Jesus has encountered these fishermen, and he now tells them where to fish. And they get a huge catch of fish. And how does Jesus end this? He says, okay, you've seen a bit of my stuff. You realize I can catch fish. That's the world's first fish finder. And, um, <laughs> and it was a good one. Oh, it was a beautiful one. And he says, okay, you've seen it. Peter, you know who I am. You have a glimpse of my holiness, and you know something about my power. Now come and follow me. And if you do, I'm going to teach you to fish. But you're going to become fishers of men, which is going to be really, really cool. Now, I, thought, I wondered to myself, what, why did Jesus mainly choose fishermen to be his followers? And if you know the answer, please tell me. But uh, I think the right answer is, we don't know. Why did he choose fishermen? I don't know. But I've got a couple of guesses. Here's my first guess. My first guess is that Jesus chose fishermen because they are sort of quintessential working class people. Now, if, 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 if God was going to come to this earth and get followers who are going to be people who are going to fish for men, he's going to choose normal folks. He didn't say, oh, I'm going to get the most brilliant people I can find, the highest scholars with the highest degrees. Nothing wrong with those things. But Jesus says, I want just normal people. Because you see, if God chose only the best and the brightest to be his followers, where would all the credit go? Well, to the best and the brightest. God says, that's not what I've done. I'm just going to choose normal folks, working class people, like fishermen. And that's what he did. But I think the second reason is because there are characteristics of fishermen, and the occupation of fishing is, is very similar to what it means to make disciples or to make followers. Now, actually, Jesus was not the first one to use the phrase fishers of men. It was used in ancient Greek and Roman society before the time of Jesus. And a fisher of men in that day meant to seek to persuade men and catch them with the truth. And so Jesus was employing a phrase that other people might have heard. Oh, a catcher of men. That is somebody who catches people with the truth. Now, it seems to me that there are many, many comparisons between fishing and fishing for fish and catching people with the truth. After all, parents, that's what you're trying to do with your children. You're trying to raise your children with the truth. To you who are teachers in schools, you're trying to convey the truth to your students. And we who are, are pastors or in the, the disciple-making business, we're trying to persuade people. We're trying to catch people. What can we learn from fishermen? Let me give you a few simple things. First of all, if you're going to be a good fisherman, you've got to be willing to get wet and dirty. Because especially here in Wyoming, if you're going to go out there and fish, you've got to get in that river. And it's cold sometimes. And you're going to probably get wet, maybe dirty. But it seems to me that one of the greatest characteristics of being a teacher or a parent or a discipler is that you've got to be willing to get wet and dirty. In other words, we don't operate from a, an ivory tower looking down at people in our clean clothes and white shirts which I shouldn't have on right now. But, but uh, if you want to teach truth, you need to model that truth. And much of life is that way. Um, if you're a fisherman, 
A fisherwoman, obviously. You, you never know if you're going to get a catch. But that doesn't stop you from, in fact, that entices you. You don't know what you're going to get, but you're going out there trying to lure those fish, but you never know what you're going to get. And that's often what it's like being a teacher and being a parent and being a disciple maker is you don't know what's going to happen, but you don't stop because you don't know what the end result is. Because there's an aspect of dependency over which you do not have control. Because a skilled fisherman knows that to a large extent they are uh, dependent at the mercy of the elements. There's so many things out of your control, but a skilled fisherman knows how to use the conditions, whatever they may be, windy or rainy or, or turbulent, whatever it might be, they know how to use those conditions for good. So when you go out to catch people or to catch students or to train your children, you don't know what, what you're going to get, but oftentimes, your failures will teach you as much as your successes. When you don't land that fish, you think, it's because I didn't set the hook, or I'm not much of a fisherman, so you real fishermen, please don't check out right now and say, that guy's an idiot. He doesn't know what he's talking about, because I don't. But, um, but, but when you fail and you don't get the, the one, you, you learn from that. And that's what we ought to do, too, because if you want to be a teacher or a parent or a disciple maker, there's a certain humility that comes with it because you know you'll fail, but you see those failures as opportunities to learn to be better. And also, uh, if the fish are not going to automatically come to your bait or your lure or your fly, they're not going to automatically come there. In fact, they're going to automatically go the other way much of the time. So there's hard work involved. And the, the, the fight isn't won at the first bite on the hook. There's perseverance that's required to be a good fisherman. And when you're fishing, and so often in pictures, you'll see a, a variety of people fishing in the, in the river. And I've done a little bit of that, very, very poorly. But you know, when you're fishing in that, in that river with other people, you really want other people to catch fish too. It's not a competitive thing, really. Of course, we always lie about how big our fish are, but, but you, you, you're, you're in there together and say, yeah, you really, let's get that one here. However, it, it, it's, a, it's something that you do together. You know how to work together. There, there, there are many things about fishing that are comparable to fishing or helping people to catch the truth that we could apply. But the next thing is uh, we say something, sometimes we say something's fishy. Um, now, Jesus must have been very fond of fish, and here's why I think it is. Because he chose to live in a fishing village. He called fishermen to be his disciples. He employed fish metaphors in his sermons. <clears throat> he miraculously multiplied fish. He ate fish. He cooked fish. And he even found money in a fish's mouth. I think he likes fish. Something's fishy. Jesus selected several Galilee fishermen as his disciples, and he headquartered there. And then, as you know, he gave us this, uh, this incredible comment that after these fishermen had caught fish, he was now going to teach them how to catch men. The next, one of the next occasions we have in the Gospels is that Jesus is starting to be opposed by the religious leaders because he's healing on the Sabbath day. And because he's doing that, they decide they're going to kill him. 
And then they come to him and they say, since you think you're some hotshot rabbi, why don't you show us a miracle? And Jesus said, I will. And here it is. Just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And Jesus said, you want a miracle? I'll give you one. You're going to see it. And it's going to be like the fish in which Jonah resided for a while. And by the way, some of you look at this passage of Scripture and some have brought this to my attention as well. You see the, the, the words three days and three nights. And if you're a typical American, you start to do your math and you go, wait, wait. He was not in there three nights. Remember the first rule of interpreting any literature this is where we Americans are so ignorant, is you must interpret it in light of what it meant to the original audience. And any language, especially the English language, is absolutely full of idioms. I could say this to you. I've told you a million times. Every one of you in this room knows I've never said anything a million times. That's an idiom. I've not been counting. One, I'm, I'm at 349 now for this First Baptist Church. No, it's just an expression. Our language is full of expressions like that in idioms, and so was theirs. Three days and three nights is an idiom, probably, that means portions of three days and three, portions of three days. That's the way they said it. And surely, Jesus was in the grave, traditionally, Friday, Saturday, and came out of the grave on Sunday. Jonah, likewise, was in the, the belly of the fish for that period of time. So Jesus said, if you want to know, if you want a miracle, I'm going to give you one big biggie. And if this one doesn't convince you, nothing else will. And, the, and he, what does he choose for his greatest miracle? A metaphor from Jonah. Then Jesus tells parables. One of his parables, he said, once again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was let down into the lake and caught all kinds of fish. So now Jesus is trying to explain what his kingdom of heaven is like. And he says, it's like, um, it's like a fishing. Um, and he says, it cuts all kinds of fish, but some of the fish that are caught are not useful to eat, and some of them are useful to eat. Some of them are clean, and some of them are unclean. And that's what's going to happen at the end of the age. God will separate out the clean from the unclean. But in the meantime, we just sit, we throw out our nets and try to catch as much as we can. The separation is not our job. That's God's job. Cast the net. That's what my disciples ought to do. So now Jesus, even in his parables, is going to use fishing. But he's not done. Because there's one miracle of Jesus that might be, apart from the resurrection, his greatest miracle because it's recorded in all four Gospels, and that's very rare. The miracle is the feeding of the 5,000. And what takes center stage in the feeding of the 5,000? Five loaves and two small fish, which Jesus then multiplied to feed a huge multitude, one of his greatest miracles. And then Jesus' um, disciples are in the temple area and they have to pay the temple tax. This was something that the Jewish people had to pay. It was not a Roman tax. And they didn't have the money. And so what does Jesus do? He says, well, uh, go, go out and catch a fish. And when you do, open its mouth. 
Uh, I remember I was out fishing with some guys um, on a river down in southern Colorado, and the first fish they caught, they, they took out of their, their tackle box or whatever it was, this little suction thing, and they put it in the fish's mouth, and, and they sucked out the, uh, the bugs the fish was eating so that they could match the bugs. And that's sort of what they did, but they didn't pull out bugs. They pulled out a coin. They pulled, Jesus even knew there was a coin in a fish's mouth. And he said, oh, pay that. That's where you can pay for the temple tax. And then, after the resurrection, there was doubt as to whether or not Jesus was a real person. They thought he might have been Casper the friendly ghost. And Jesus says, no, I'm not. You got any food here to eat? And they brought him a piece of broiled fish. And he ate it. He said, you know, ghosts don't eat fish. That's just not normal. Now, you've seen this. You've probably seen it on many, many cars before, have you not? Um, what you might not know is that this is one of the most ancient symbols of Christianity. Um, it's more ancient than the cross. Actually, there are three ancient symbols of Christianity. The fish, the anchor, and the cross. This is the most ancient. On, on catacombs in Rome and other places, you would often find this figure here uh, uh, of the fish. It was um, when the Christians would meet together in a place, they marked the place where they met by the sign of a fish. And the reason is because it was illegal to be a Christian for 300 years, so they had to secretly meet. When you met someone in public and you didn't know much about them, what you would do is you would get down on the ground and you would draw something like this. You'd go, and someone look at you and they go, and you go, oh, let's continue our conversation. But if the person was a Christian, they would get down on their knees and they would draw the rest of the fish. That's how you identified who was a Christian and who was not. It was by the, sound, by the sign of the fish. Now, um, the fish, fish in Greek is the word ichthus. That's the Greek word. Here it is. This is one of the ancient ones found, I think this one is found in Rome. Or, or, or maybe this is Ephesus. I've, I've forgotten right now. Yeah, this was found in Ephesus. You see the Greek letters um, on, in the letters, ichthus, those are the five letters you see there. And then those five letters all are contained within that circle with the lines through it. So sometimes they would write the, they would just do the sign of the fish. Sometimes they would write the word ichthus and sometimes they would just make the wheel like that. They knew that that was an acronym that stood for the following. I is the first letter in the name of Jesus. It's, in Greek, it's, it's Jesus. So Jesus' name begins with an I, and then the Christos, the, the one that looks like an X there, the Chi, that's, that's, the, that's the acronym for Christ, and then Theo, the Theta, that's the, um, um, that stands for God, Huios, God's Son, Soter, our Savior. So the word fish, Ichthus, was an ancient acronym for Jesus Christ. Christ, God's Son, our Savior. It's one of the earliest creeds that we have was in the word ichthus. And so that's why you see it on bumper stickers and probably a lot of people that even have it on their car don't know that what, but this means Jesus Christ is God's Son. He's our Savior. You see, then one of the most ancient symbols of Christianity was a fish. 
Now, this is another ancient one. This one was found in, um, in the Palatine Hill in Rome. The one on the left is what is actually there today, and on the right, it's, uh, it's expanded so you could see a little better. This is uh, Alexamenos, um, worships his god, is what it says there. This is ancient graffiti, and there's graffiti all over in those countries if you've been there. But this is what it is, and it, it's actually making fun of Jesus. There's an ass on a cross, and they say, oh, Alexamenos, who was a Christian, this is him worshiping his god, a donkey on a cross. So they're, they're uh, poking fun, just like they do in our society today at us as Christians. And then, of course, how the Apostle Paul responds to that. He says, well, they're right. The cross is foolishness. To those who want some great philosophical discussion about God, it's kind of crazy to think that our God died on a cross. And for those that want to see great acts of power, it's kind of strange to see your God die on a cross. But the resurrection changed everything. It's the foolishness of the cross by which we're saved. So the Bible says. This is an ancient, ancient graffiti there. Well, you've probably seen this, uh, th this little um, phrase here, fish or cut bait. Um, it's used uh, colloquially in our society today to, to say to somebody that you need to make a decision. We say, hey, it's time to fish or cut bait. In other words, stop procrastinating, stop being of two minds, stop being indecisive. You need to make a decision. So what we're going to see next is Jesus, not with these words, but in another way, is going to say to his disciples, let's fish or cut bait. Here's what happened. Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon told told them, and they said, hey, we'll go with you. So they went out, got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Typically in that society, they fished at night so that they'd have fresh fish to sell in the morning. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the other side of the boat, and you'll find some. And they did. They were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciples whom Jesus loved said to Peter, that's John. John doesn't like to say, hey, and I said to Peter. He, says, you know, he uses this expression to refer to himself. It's the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him. For he had taken it off, he was fishing, and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw fire burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus knows how to cook, even. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you have just caught. Simon Peter climbed aboard and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153. But even with so many, the net was not torn. And the, some people have tried to say, what does he mean by 153? Is there some significance to that? And the answer is probably no, just a big number. There were a lot of them. And they counted them. Why do they count them? Every fisherman counts their fish. You're going to sell these things. They want to know how much they caught that night. It was a great, 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 great night. Jesus said to them, come, have breakfast. None of them dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took some bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. 
Now, this was the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. Now, what Jesus is going to do now, and we're going to look at this next week, is he's going to now reinstate Peter, because Peter is one of the people who is fishing. This is his boat. And he's going to say, Peter, it's decision time now. I've given you, I've lived with you guys three years. You've seen me die. You've seen me buried. You've seen me raised from the dead. I'm leaving now shortly. It's time for you to fish or cut bait. It's time to decide. Are you going to go back to your old way of life, what you know to be familiar to you, an occupation for which you've been trained your whole life? Or are you going to change and become a fisher of men? It's time to decide. Now, interestingly, um, uh, uh, there's so many things about fishing that are are really important. And uh, I'm going to... um, I'm going to try to draw on some of them as we conclude this morning. I'm just going to call this fish sense. All of these are taken from idioms that we commonly use with regard to fish. First of all, this is somebody you don't want to be. You don't want to be a cold fish, someone who's unemotional, unfriendly, disinterested, distant, unfeeling. One of the things that is most commended for us in the New Testament is being a person who's hospitable, The word hospitality simply means you love strangers. You're not a cold fish. So hopefully if you're a cold fish, you'd eat some of that broiled fish of Jesus. Sometimes um, we encounter situations in life where we are fish out of water, outside of our comfort zone. And by the way, I think God often puts us in such places where we're out of our comfort zone. Why? Because he wants to stretch us. Really, the only way we learn as people is sometimes to be outside of our comfort zone. Fish out of water is a good place to be sometimes because it is from such situations that God often matures us. You have heard this one before. Um, A hook is a catchy line. Like in music, there's a hook that catch people. That's something that's catchy. And all of you who are in Communications 101, All of us who have to talk for a living in some ways, you know how important it is to catch people. And that's like a catchy line. This one, of course, is not a good one. It's very common in our society today where people drink to excess. And we, it's called, they drink like a fish. They consume excessive amounts of alcohol. This is a great danger with catastrophic consequences. I think we know that. Sometimes we use the word, you, you hit a snag, because easy, it's easy. I've done this so many times while fishing on lakes in Wisconsin. You, you catch something on the bottom, and you hit a snag, and, and sometimes you pull, and sometimes you break your line. Sometimes you cut your line and give up. But when you hit a snag, that's, uh, uh, it's such times like that, it's easy to quit. But you know, if you quit, you're absolutely sure to fail. And sometimes we fish for compliments. For people who are are so needy sometimes, we're so down on ourselves, so insecure that we we prompt people to compliment us, which is generally something that's insecure about, about us. And oftentimes, when we are fishing for compliments, a complimentary behavior to that is that we become bottom feeders. Those are fish that feed on the refuse at the bottom of, of the lake or the, or, or the pond. And, and they're people who take advantage or actually enjoy the misfortunes of others. And by the way, in the Bible, that's something God really dislikes. He dislikes when we take any pleasure in the misfortune of other people. 
we oftentimes take the bait, hook, line, and sinker. Sometimes charlatans and other slick salesmen come into our lives and uh, we, we, we fall for it. Discernment is deeply, deeply needed. Of course, we console ourselves many times when we, a boyfriend or a girlfriend has rejected us. We soothe our pain with the words, there are plenty of other fish in the sea, and sometimes we end up rebounding and making really, really dumb decisions. Maybe you come from Sheridan, Wyoming, and you're a big fish in a little pond, and then you go to a little bit bigger school or bigger place, and life has a way of awakening us to a, a much, much bigger world. If you're a big fish in a little pond, I would say to you this, enjoy it. I was one of those. But don't get a big head. Because <laughs> you're, you're a big fish in a little pond, you say, hey man, I got this thing licked. And then you get into a bigger pond and you go, woo, there are people way smarter than I am here. Way better in almost, in almost everything. Of course, we kick ourselves with the big one that got away. But when something sounds fishy, it probably is. And so we should stay away. And last, if you're looking for a job sometimes and you aren't getting one, maybe you'll need to cast a wider net. Well, fishing for people and fishing for fish. I would ask you a question in conclusion. Which, where do you give your life? Fishing for fish is kind of an, the, the main uh, statement for giving your life to leisure. Doing it, fishing for fish is really a good thing to do. For many people, it's one of the best ways they can relax. But if the, passion, the greatest passion of your life is fishing for fish, I would suggest to you a greater passion, fishing for people. Fish are not going to last. People will last their eternity. Fishing for fish is good. In fact, we probably ought to do more of it. But fishing for people is even better. In this sense, we are called to be fishers of men not just keepers of the aquarium. <laughs> Remember, part of our job as Christians is we're called to be fishers of men. Remember a few things. Remember what Jesus says to his disciples? He didn't say, go and be fishers of men. That's not what he said. Remember what he said? I will make you fishers of men. First thing to remember about being a fisher of men is you can't do it. You won't do it very well. No one will, but he can. He's the ultimate fisher of men. And then, if you're going to be a fisher of men, one of the things you've got to do is get out of the holy huddle and go where the fish are. And remember, God doesn't clean his fish before he catches them. So often what we do to people is say, clean up your act and then come to church. That's weird. No fisherman would say, hey, now fish, jump into the boat and then we'll catch you. That's ridiculous. No. God doesn't catch fish before he kids me. He says, come just as you are. But I remember my dad said to me when I fished as a little child, he says, the first rule of fishing is don't scare the fish away. Don't make a lot of noise. You'll scare them away. And who, how do we fish best? We fish best with the best bait of all, which is the gospel. And the gospel is Jesus Christ, God's son, our savior. There it is. Oh, got to end with a story. There was once a man who had a reputation for always being able to catch fish. He was really good at it. Regardless of whatever time of year it was, whether anybody else was catching fish, this man always managed to come back with a whole trove of big fish. His brother-in-law, 
who happened to be a Wyoming game warden, was always amazed at this man's success. And so he decided some, one time he was going to go with his brother-in-law out fishing in a lake. I think it was the Smet Lake, I think it was. So <laughs> they, they went. They, but this particular lake was not known for its good fishing. So the game warden watched his brother-in-law take the boat out into the middle of the lake and cut off the motor. Now the game warden was confused because he knew the middle of the lake is usually not the best place to catch fish. The sides were where there's some reeds and some other stuff where the fish hang out. But that's not what happened. And so instead of getting out a rod and reel, the game warden's brother-in-law pulled out a stick of dynamite. He lit it, he threw it overboard, and this is what happened. Boom! It blew up, and there were big fish all over the surface of the, of the lake. He just picked them up and put them in the boat. <laughs> the game warden couldn't believe it. He immediately began reciting the fishing laws and the regulations and how much of the fine would be. This didn't seem to bother his brother-in-law in the least. He simply reached into his bag for another stick of dynamite. He lit it. He tossed it to the game warden and said, are you going to talk or are you going to fish? <laughs> Boom. Now, I'm quite certain this story is not true, but I sometimes wonder, what would it take for God to get us to actually be fishers of men? I hope it doesn't take dynamite. Actually, it does take dynamite, Heavenly Father, because you gave us the world's greatest dynamite, the resurrection of Jesus. And somehow that dynamite doesn't seem to stir our souls sufficiently, but I pray that you would through your Holy Spirit. He's dynamite too, such that we would be not only people who are faithful fishermen, but those who make others the same. To that end, we pray for your 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 Holy Spirit to fill us, to empower us, and to use us as your ambassadors, your fishermen in this good world in which you've placed us. In Jesus' name we pray.